brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. Ian Scotto here, Jack Murphy is here. And I gave a little recap from SHOT Show and from the Team Room Party for uh, people who heard the episode two episodes ago. The one you did in the field? Yes, it was cool, <laughs> man. But uh, yeah, people probably want to hear from you about what you thought of uh, SHOT Show and, of course, the Team Room Party. Well, the Team Room Party went good. It was in a smaller, quieter venue this year, kind of off the beaten path in Vegas, and I think it was it was good. It was better. It was easier for us to like talk to each other, yeah. talk to the people who came to the party, meet each other. Actually, the food was very good. Beer was good. You know, can't complain. Uh, I was happy with it. And and I think it was just a it, probably a bigger crowd of people in terms of um, members because I think the the few years before that that we did the Team Room Party at the House of Blues, we had some like probably more friends who came but this was a lot of members of the site of team room members there people that we don't know probably what do you think like 100 people yeah it was around there yeah and, and it was a good mix of familiar faces but also people who are brand new to the site and also um there were even a couple of people um james powell was telling me who who was who were like oh you guys have a website my you know my wife just subscribed oh yeah to yeah great club and I, I wasn't even aware. So that's cool. It's a mix of all different people. Yeah, who are... we got to do some better cross promotion, I guess. <laughs> no, but I think that's that's good to see too, though. That, that Craig Club is doing really well, and um, yeah, every every part of Hurricane Group I think has its like core uh, membership. So yeah, it's good. Um, the Shot Show itself, interesting as always, and exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my seventh year in a row. Wow. All right. The shot show. So I'm kind of like, as far as like the actual show itself, I'm pretty burned out on all that. Um, but, you know, I got to see friends of mine. I got to see people I haven't seen in a long time. I got to see guys, you know, I served with in Ranger Battalion that I haven't seen in years. Um, so, you know, it's great for that, you know, and it's great for seeing some of the um, soft rep writers who are spread out around the country and don't get to see every day. So uh, it's a good experience in that sense. Yeah, it was my first time meeting Kurt, who was awesome. First time meeting BK, Frumentarius, uh, and I'm, I'm the one who tends to know everybody from the site, but even Alex I never met. So there's I, I had never met Alex in person, actually. And I said it on uh, two shows back, when I met Alex, when I met these guys, it didn't feel like I was meeting a new person. Alex is exactly who I yeah, expected yeah. him to be. yeah. No, yeah, Alex was. Uh, I felt like I had met him before, um, but it, it went. Uh, it was good, you know. We, you know, yeah, we had a pretty good group of our guys out there too. Jason from Ontario's. Unless you want to say James Powell, I don't know. Uh, no, I mean his his name is out there, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, I still say James Powell. <laughs> Mister Odyssean. Uh, his name you can't say. Who else was out there? Kurt. 
BK. And, and then, of course, there were writers for the other sites, like Travis. Yeah, uh, Scott. Yeah, um, Jen's Hammer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good group of guys. Mark Miller. Mark Miller was there. And we were <laughs> we were at a house in, like, the worst part of Vegas <laughs> where we heard uh, cops coming by all night. Yeah, man, we need to do a better job with that. Like, and I'm tired of sleeping on the couch. <laughs> well, know? that's not fun. But you also came later than uh, other people, so that's why that happened. I had a bed. I usually don't have a bed. I got a bed last year only because we got kicked out of the Taj Mahal you guys were staying in, and we were in another like rent Airbnb house again in the ghetto. <laughs> I got a bed that time. Um, and then the other thing I got to ask you about is prior to going to SHOT Show, you went to what someone says is like the polar opposite with your wife. You went to the oh, Women's yeah. March. Yeah. Um, my wife has spent, you know, a good bulk of her career as a journalist covering um, social conflicts and protest movements and stuff like that. So she wanted to go take a look. And um, we didn't actually see the march itself. Like beforehand, they have like all the pro- I don't know if they're protesters necessarily. I guess so, but they have them all corralled like behind these like steel uh, fencing, and then they release them and they get to go march past uh, Trump Tower. Um, so we weren't there for that. We just kind of saw like the the beginnings of it as people were like, "Oh, going to the rally point." Yeah, the Trump Tower thing reminds me. Um, there is I'll be politically correct on here, even though I don't have to be a uh, transgender person I went to school with, and it's a picture of this person, him, her, whatever, topless in front of uh, Trump Tower. So, like, that's, really? that's the Women's March for that's you. That's awesome. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, well, I mean, what do you think of the message? Or I don't know. With all these protest movements, I mean, at least for me, I think it's really hard, and it's my main problem with them, it's really hard to know exactly what it is they want. And, you know, this this goes for like Occupy Wall Street. This goes for Black Lives Matter. This goes for the Women's March. It's uh, they're all formed around this sort of like emotional, cathartic experience that they want to have this like sense of togetherness. And we're all in opposition to this thing. Um, But like reform wise, like what policies do you want put in place? And that's my problem with all these protest movements is they're not focused around programmatic reform. So I, I don't even I, it gets to the point where I don't even know if I agree or disagree with them because I don't know what they really stand for. And every single person you talk to is probably going to say something different. See, I, I'm sort of in disagreement with you on this. And I, I was at Occupy Wall Street when it happened, which was interesting. I wasn't there as like a protester. I went to cover it with Will Cow and Mike Vins. And we got some audio of, of yeah people who were like, they don't know why they're there. It was interesting. It was just funny. But uh my feeling, and I said it to you when we were, you know, texting back and forth before the show, I feel like Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, it's it's all one and the same. It's all kind of the same message of that they want liberal policies, and it's a lot of identity politics so that if you say, I don't stand for what the Women's March stands for, oh, why do you hate women? I don't like Black Lives Matter. Oh, why don't you care about there's, black people? There's definitely a strong undercurrent of identity politics, but that's true throughout all of America at the moment. It's all about identity and how you identify yourself. I mean, I, I would say there's no right-wing um, the march fuck like this. There isn't, there's the, nothing that's like a white man's... Well, well, I mean, we've seen some of that, but it's really minor compared... The Women's March is a big thing. If you talk to conservatives, their identity is very, very important to them. I, I don't think it's as important as a lot. It's extremely important, and how they identify is extremely important. But 
the reason I say it's all just left wing is all right. One of the well, these these three marches are are left leaning, yeah, and yeah. they're left wing. Yeah, I'm not debating. And I think that. that's all that the politics is about. Like I, I was listening. But to if you, you go up to them and you ask, what would you like your government to do? I think some. I think the more informed people, um, there's honestly, some would say they would say they want government to pay for birth control, healthcare, things they want, like that. They want um, abortion to be legal in all 50 states. It's already legal. Yeah, but they, they want to make sure that there's not a Supreme Court justice that would overturn Roe v. Wade. And that, that's not like a reform. That's not a policy. That's just like, oh, I'm afraid the Supreme Court's going to change. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I think that's why they want to stack Democrats in there. That's one of the main reasons. I'm sure they do. And, and you know, but these and are... also they want, they, they want, quote, women to run. What kind of women? Definitely not Republican. But no, women. nobody, I, I mean, you can look at the Women's March or even attend it, and that's not what you come away with. Like, I... I, I don't understand what they wanted. I know they are they're opposed to Trump. They uh, they don't like sexism. Okay. I would say the birth control thing is one policy. Uh, you know, they're they're very against uh, companies opting out of birth control for religious reasons. Remember the uh, Hobby Lobby thing where yeah. Hobby Lobby was yeah. saying, you know, th- that's that's one message I've seen that I think is pretty clear. I, I didn't take that away from it, but I, I wasn't mean, there, so you would know. Better I, than I, I mean, I also didn't go around and interview people and i if i was to actually if i was actually covering the march i would do that i would go and talk to more people and see what their thoughts were um but with all these movements i I just come away from it like more baffled than when i started what about uh is is one of the coherent themes uh trump is literally hitler i didn't (laughs) see i didn't see any like signs like that well let me think is he Hitler? Is it? I don't think I saw anything about like Nazis or anything like that that yeah. I recall. Well, I, it's just interesting because you go to from there to Shot Show, which yeah. really is the opposite. Because I said this when I went to Shot Show last year on the podcast that I and if you I, think the people at the Shot Show don't have an identity, th- no, they they're do. not identifying. I, I think it's different though, I think it's I, I personally see it as I, I do. I, I guess just the way I see it is different, but um. I said that when I went last year, just looking at it objectively, I felt like the people walking around SHOT Show were the people forgotten about by, you know, the, quote, coastal elites. Yeah. yeah. No, I like, agree. Why, why did, how did yeah. Trump get elected? Mm-hmm. These are the people that many of them elected Trump, and they did feel forgotten about. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. I agree. And when I, I, the last, last year at SHOT Show, this was hilarious, I, uh, I walked in the last day of the show, and um, it was totally quiet. Like, if you've ever been to the SHOT Show, it's at the uh, Sands Expo Center. It is huge, huge. And there's just thousands and thousands of people packed in there. And I walk in there that last day, and it's like you could hear a pin drop. And I'm like, oh, my God. I, I thought and my first thought was it, it must be because it's the last day and everyone's so burned out on partying and drinking. Like, everyone must be hungover and exhausted. <laughs> but then as I'm walking around, I realize they have these projection screens all over the place and it's Trump's inauguration. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And everyone's there with like their hand over their heart, like getting a little teary eyed, like we're making America great again. And yeah, and they were just totally quiet. Like you literally hear a pin drop in this, in this convention center. Um, and yeah, so these are people who have uh, a whole, I shouldn't say a whole separate um, set of values, but a different set of values that isn't um, represented uh, in the media um, in Hollywood, in television, but nonetheless, it is they are they do constitute a culture, 
It's a culture. They're people. They have jobs. They have families. Or, you know, if they're unemployed, they have problems putting food on the table. They have concerns just like anyone else in America. And it's not totally a mistake that they felt forgotten about. Mm-hmm. You know, most of, the, uh, most of the poverty in America is white poverty. Most of the people on welfare in America, it's not like black welfare mothers in New York City. It's Although, to be fair, the people at SHOT Show are not. Many no, no. wealthy People yeah, yeah, and they're they're small bit small business owners, large business owners. You know, they're successful people. I'm making a, a kind of statement sure, about people in Middle America, um, who you know, some of them are a lot of them are not doing so well, and economically, the places where they live have been neglected and passed over. And I think, yeah, they absolutely responded to Donald Trump because he was coming in. He's like, listen, we're going to focus on America again. We're going to put America first. Uh, we're not going to try to shut down coal factories. We're going to try to stimulate American industry and business. And whether or not that, like, the, are the jobs coming back? That's another debate. And that's like an economic conversation. It's very complicated. Um, but I think that emotionally they responded to that. And yeah, these are the people um, from, you know, not coastal elites like Donald Trump is a coastal yeah. elite. But um, there are people who live, you know, in the square states, you know, in the middle of America. They're not on the left coast or the right coast. And um, I think, yeah, it's a culture that has been forgotten about and no one really talks about. And, you know, they responded to that. Yeah, 100 percent, which is a nice transition to tonight as we're recording this. By the time you'll hear it, it will have happened. But is the uh, State of the Union address And the one thing I wanted to mention is there's quite a few Democrats who are just not going. Um, I wrote down all of them. So there's Representative John Lewis of Georgia, Maxine Waters of California, Frederica Wilson of Florida, Premia Jayapal, might be saying that wrong, of Washington, Earl Blumenauer of Oregon, Gregory Meeks of New York, Danny Davis of Illinois, Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, Bobby Rush of Illinois. Like, it's quite a few people who are just not going and I, I was trying to look it up, so if, if I'm wrong on this, feel free to correct me, but I'm pretty sure, like, unprecedented for this amount of people to just not go to the State of the Union. And, and we were talking about it before. My feeling is, no matter how you feel about this current president, you may not be obligated to go to the State of the Union, but it is just a tradition that you go, you listen to this president speak and show your participation in the process. And well, I mean, Donald Trump himself has broken from tradition oh, on nearly every single thing. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I don't know that one thing justifies the other, you know, but I mean, personally, I don't care. Like this is like entertainment. Um, it's not about politics. It's like people like criticizing Trump because he plays golf too much. It's like, I don't care. Yeah. I don't I don't care about that. People would criticize um, Obama for playing too much golf. People would criticize George W. Bush because he spent too much time at his ranch in Texas. I don't I don't care. That's that's entertainment. That's not about policy. That's not about passing legislation. So, I mean, like to me, this is like uh, reality TV, like who's going to the State of the Union address? Who's not? And I can see like already Fox News having like a ticker. Are you going? Are you not going? And here's the ones who are going. Here are the ones who aren't. Who is going to go? Yeah. Yeah, it it definitely, you know, as you said, this president is certainly broken from tradition himself, but it it does break from a pretty long tradition in this democracy that you go and you watch a president do the State of the Union. And I think whether you like the guy or not, you should be there. That's that's my feeling on it. As we were saying earlier before we recorded, you're not obligated to go, but I think you should be there. Like if if, if you ran for Congress and you won, 
I, I think for the most part, your constituents want it, want their voice heard to be there, even though it's not a vote. Nobody's voice is going to be heard, except I, um, Donald Trump's. <laughs> unless uh, someone pulls a, um, who was it, Congressman? That yelled Joe, at Obama? Yeah. You lied. Joe Wilson, yeah. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. I'll, I'll fact check that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. I, I think that's more participating in the process, honestly, to go and shout something out than to not go at all. I, I don't know. Again, it's entertainment. He, and he got a ton of donations after that. You know, the anti-Obama crowd was like, I like this guy, the balls to shout something out. I'm going to donate to his campaign. I don't want to see America end up like having the Taiwanese parliament where they're like throwing fisticuffs, you know? British parliament gets pretty... Uh, Pretty crazy too. It, it not they don't throw fisticuffs, but they no they yell. They, like, yeah, they yell at each other and they crit- criticize each other. And um, American presidents couldn't handle that. I mean, I don't think even Obama could handle that. He it seems like he kind of had thick skin. Donald Trump, he definitely wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, I don't think Bush would have been able to handle it either. Like American presidents, I don't think they can handle that kind of like criticism. It's just not part of our like institution. Congressmen are kind of being forced to handle it because now when they have these town hall meetings, there are large groups of protesters who show up, shout shit out, disrupt, you know, don't wait for their turn to ask. And they want their representative to be like the most extreme person possible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in some case, but, you know, in other cases where let's say it's a Republican congressman, they'll have a huge constituency of left-wing people, some not even in the district, be like, you know, why don't you want women to have birth control, you fascist pig, and (laughs) shit like that, you know? I've seen it. I I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, and so they kind of have to handle that type of stuff when when they hold these public town hall meetings. And then if you don't hold the public town hall meeting, people will be like, you don't want to listen to your constituents. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I think, you know, the smartest people out there are not going to ever want to get into politics because it's like, who wants, I don't. Who, wants <laughs> who wants to deal with that mess? Yeah. You know, and that's kind of sad. Although, it, it, you know, this is another precedent set. Like, it used to be that if you said any, you know, Remember Bill Clinton, like, I smoked marijuana and inhale, and it was a huge, like, oh, my God moment. At this point, Trump has done it all. Like, we've talked about him banging porn stars, grabbing by the pussy comment. Like, I think anything is fair game after that. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you you admit certain things, like how Obama even came out and said, like, yes, experimented with cocaine in college. No one talked about it again because he said he did it, whatever. Yeah. I think if you own up to that kind of stuff, people are more forgiving. They understand, like, okay, you were a kid, like you did some dumb stuff. And, you know, if you lie about it and then it comes out, then that becomes a problem. Like, same thing like Clinton. Even if he had said, yes, I, I, I did, in <laughs> fact, have sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, I, I think it would have been easier for, for everybody, all parties concerned, probably. He wouldn't have gotten impeached. He would not have gotten, yeah, that, that whole, like, deposition and, yeah, all that stuff would not have happened. Yeah. Um, all right. Listener email before we get to Mike Vining, which I know that you are um, – nerding out hardcore uh, about I'm su- this. I'm super stoked. I, I have to <laughs> dial it down a little bit because I get all excited when we talk to... I don't think I've ever seen you more excited to have a guest on. So Yeah, I, I mean, I've uh, I've wanted to have uh, Sergeant Major Vining on for a long time. He's just a fascinating guy. He has a, a wealth of knowledge locked up in his mind yeah. that, that he can share with you. It's going to be great. So, um, yeah, right before we get to that, email sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I thought this was a really good one. Um, and keep them coming. Hi, lads. I've recently been getting right into your podcast as a serving member of Australian Soft. I really love what you're putting out. Uh, my question for you today is this. 
what is your feeling toward the current trend of soft personnel being brought more and more into the public eye? Does the boost in recruitment from all these books and movies come at the cost of TTPs potentially being gleaned by hostile stakeholders? I see videos of the Taliban's red unit and can't help but think that this may be a result of one too many SEAL videos popping up on YouTube. What other considerations are there for doing this? Love your work, so please keep doing what you're doing. And he uh, signs simply as C. So those are some really interesting comments. Um, And I'll say there's um, a a very big cultural difference between the Australians and the United States in as far as how they regard special operations and how they handle it. And it's not true just for Australia. Also, um, the European countries, um, for the Canadians, I met with some Canadian special operations guys at SHOT. Um, the, The... Everything for those countries is like super, super sensitive, super political. Um, Australian special operations, whenever they have their pictures taken, they're wearing balaclavas and ski masks and stuff because we can't compromise our identity and the terrorists will know who we are. They'll come and kill our families. And uh, they go and they do they'll do a mission like a, a foreign internal defense mission overseas. And that is like the deepest, darkest secret of say Australia that is like super classified. Nobody talks about that in the United States. We'll send special forces out to do a similar mission. And there's like a press release. It's like completely out in the open and they'll interview special forces members, but they're not wearing any masks. And here we are, we're training, uh, you know, our host nation partners in, uh, you know, this West African country. And this is kind of what we're doing over here. And it's all good. It's a totally different, like cultural differences and how we handle things. And, um, I think part of it is because America has, there's a bunch of different reasons why, but I think America, you know, we're a democracy as is Australia, but we also have the free freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And, um, we're just much bigger, you know, we're kind of the, we're the world leader, world's most powerful military. So our approach to public engagement is different by necessity. Um, the does, is it a good thing or a bad thing that special operations soldiers are more in the limelight than they were in the past? Um, I think it has both good and bad aspects. Uh, I, I really do believe that in a democratic country like the United States, that there has to be public engagement, that the taxpayers should know that this is where your money is going towards, that you have this capability, you have this unit that does unconventional warfare, um, you, you have this unit that does counterterrorism, and this is a little bit about them and what they do and why. And that's really important because in a democracy, you need public support for these people, for these capabilities, and these units need um, congressional support. They need congressional funding. So there has to be some sort of like engagement and back and forth, especially when um, we live in a time where, like what's the statistic, like 0.05% of Americans serve in the military? Yeah, it's around that. Currently, I mean, we have a lot of veterans but who are draftees from Vietnam and World War II, but like people in modern, my generation, you know, a very small number of Americans are serving. And a lot of those who serve are serving because their dads were in the military. So it becomes almost like a family tradition. Um, and it, so when you have so many people in America who have never served in the military, it becomes even more important to have that sort of um, education and public relations to reach out to them and talk to them and say, these are your soldiers. They're, they're serving you in your country and you should know about them. It doesn't mean you have to know everything. It doesn't mean that you have to be 
uh, a military, you know, nerd like I am, mm. but you should know something about them and you should know why we're sending these guys overseas and why some of them come home in body bags, yeah. you know? So that's really important. Um, but it does have negative aspects and it can turn into like a, a, a feeding frenzy. You know, there's, um, a, a one person I know, a retired special forces officer, you know, he said, we call ourselves the quiet professionals. Um, it can become a problem if we're the silent professionals and we say nothing. And he said, you know, the, we should really put the emphasis on professional rather than quiet. You know, it's okay to talk. It's okay to, um, you know, discuss what you did in the military, but we should probably be professional about it. And that's something that I've even thought about as I'm writing my memoir right now, which is something I, I didn't want to do for a long time. But as I'm writing this book, I'm thinking about what do I want to say and how do I want to say it? And I, um, I, I want to be candid and honest about, you know, myself and mistakes I made, um, also about the good things I did, but, and I also want to be honest about the war in general and like what went right and what went wrong, but I don't want it to be like unprofessional. I don't want it to be like, you know, a Facebook rant, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't really want it to be like that. So, um, that's something to think about, I think. And I think all veterans should, um, think about that. And I, I encourage them to share their experiences um, and just think about how they want to represent themselves and how they want to represent the military. Uh, and the last point I thought that, that this, uh, this reader brought up, which I think is very interesting, is about the enemy starting up special forces, quote unquote, units. Yeah. And is that because they saw too many uh, SEAL Team 6 uh, television shows or, or something. Yeah. That's part of it. I do think that's part of it, that they see this is the cool thing. So we want to be cool, too. I've seen cool guy videos that rebel groups made in Syria that are like, holy crap, like these guys are dressing like Call of Duty characters. They're trying to look like American special operations. They're riding dirt bikes, and they're going in and shooting up people and I think part of that is they see RPR and they're trying to replicate it. The other thing we have to consider is that there's been people like me, people like this writer, this guy who says he's in Australian special operations. They've been over to Afghanistan. And what's also happening is that the enemy is getting smarter by fighting us. So we fight them. They lose. They get their guys get killed. And they, they also learn from that experience. It's military Darwinism. So they're like, okay, we need to start doing what those guys do because we want to win. So the enemy gets stronger by fighting us. And there's also some counterinsurgency theory about this, um, that whenever a strong power fights a weak power, the stronger power gets weaker, the mm-hmm. weaker power gets stronger. There's some inverse relationships there. So that's a, that's a, a kind of a second and third order effect of the war on terror that we also need to consider. Well said, man. I mean, if you guys heard that little chirp as uh, Jack was speaking before, that was actually... Um, Army Sergeant Major Mike Vining, and he was saying, I'm set to go. So, okay, yeah, cool. let's, let's bring him on. Let's give him a call. So joining us for the first time on Soft Rep Radio, and I know you're very excited for it, Jack. I'm excited to have on U.S. Army Sergeant Major Mike Vining, one of the original Delta Force operators, attended the first ever operators training course, which is OTC, and he's now working at the National EOD Association and the EOD warrior foundation and it's an honor to have you on sir well thank you i'm glad to be on yeah thanks mike i mean it's uh 
you know, you, uh, you know, just for some of the readers who perhaps are familiar, you know, uh, Sergeant Major Vining helped me out a little bit when I was writing uh, an article about Blue Light, which was, um, you know, one of America's first counterterrorism units. And uh, Mike Vining uh, was one of the original Delta Force operators. So to kind of understand the history of counterterrorism, I think you have to understand both of these units and the interplay between the two of them. So, you know, I found that uh, Sergeant Major Vining just has a wealth of knowledge and a lot of information. You know, it, like I've said in the past, this is like a living history. You know, these things aren't necessarily written down in books. And if you want to understand them, you have to go and find the actual people who are there and and, uh, and maybe they'll talk to you. And, um, you know, so I just wanted to have uh, Sergeant Major Vining on today to really discuss, you know, his military career. He served for a long time, um, continues to stay engaged in the community. And um, I just think he has a fascinating experience. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. Um, do you want to talk about, you know, your service began in, uh, in the Vietnam War. Do you want to yes. talk a little bit about how you came into the military and some of your early sure. experiences in uh, EOD? Sure. Yeah, uh, I, I came into the Army in 1968. I had just graduated from high school. Two weeks after I graduated from high school, I joined the Army. Um, I, so I was interested in the Army bomb disposal program, but you couldn't uh, enlist for it. You had to enlist for another school and uh, have an MOS before you were selected to to go to the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Program. So I went in the Army, went to basic training, Fort Knox. I took my AIT at Redstone, which was ammunition renovation, 55 Charlie, uh, so that I would learn about ammunition. And it was there during the part of the school, we had to go out to the EOD range and uh, dispose of munitions that were unserviceable EOD taught us how to dispose of these unserviceable munitions and of course they asked for volunteers and then I volunteered so right from the school ammunition school I went into uh, went down to Fort McCollin for two weeks phase one EOD school chemical phase bio phase and then went to the surface school at Indian Head Maryland and uh, <clears throat> That's about a 12, 14-week school at Indian Head, Maryland. And uh, it's the proponent for EOD is the Navy. The Navy runs the school. Today, the school is at Eglin Air Force Base, and the Navy is still the proponent for EOD. And uh, then uh, after EOD school, I went to Tech Escort in Edgewood Arsenal, Maryland, um, but I really wanted to go to Vietnam. That was the whole purpose of me enlisting, um, was to go to Vietnam to serve my country and to see what the ground truth was in Vietnam. You know, a lot of people talked about whether we should be there or not. Most of those people who talked about it never were there. Um, and so I wanted to find out for myself. So I put in paperwork three times before I got orders, came down on orders for Vietnam. So, 
So you were, you had the, you know, luckily, you know, a lot of draftees kind of went straight to Vietnam after their initial training. It sounds like, you know, you had uh, quite a bit of training before you landed in Vietnam. Well, yes, in, in the EOD program, they wanted you to, before you, they didn't want to send you right from EOD school to Vietnam. They wanted you to spend a, at least a year in the field working, doing EOD work prior to going to Vietnam. Now, that changed later in the war, and I knew several people that went right from school to Vietnam, but uh, they wanted you to have at least a year's experience before you went to Vietnam. And when you, when you arrived in country um, and you started to do your job, uh, and I know you were involved in disposing of some fairly large uh, you know, caches of enemy munitions, uh, what what did you find in Vietnam? What what was the ground truth you uncovered there? <laughs> what was the ground truth in Vietnam? Um, my opinion was that you know, in the rural countryside, it didn't matter who what what form of government was in Saigon. Um, they were still going to go out and harvest their rice and. And life was still going to, you know, they were just trying to make, live to subsistence out in the real country. You know, you had a corrupt government, uh, pretty corrupt uh, in place. Uh, you know, I didn't know all about the, you know, the reasons why and stuff like that. But as far as EOD went, I learned in one year, you know, I learned what, you know, it would probably take at least 10 years to learn stateside. Uh, it was an intense one year. Now, what, uh, as a, you know, bomb disposal technician, uh, what was, you know, your actual job? What did that consist of? Uh, I mean, I can certainly talk about some of the experiences uh, seeing EOD guys work in Iraq when I was over there. Mm-hmm. But what, what was it like for Vietnam um, doing your job there? Well, I, w- I was signed to the 99th Ordnance Detachment EOD at Phuc Vinh. Uh, it was also known as Camp Gorvad. It was later changed to Cap Casey, named after General Casey of the 1st Cav, who died, uh, I think, in May of 1970. His plane, his helicopter, and they ran into a mountain, and everybody on board his helicopter was killed, so they named Fire Support Base after him. As for the job, we would um, we were like a fire department. We had a ten man unit. Uh, we would wait for the call to come in. Some unit would request, usually through the brigade. First, we supported for all of First Cav's Divi- First Cavalry Division's operations uh, in the northwest corner of Three Corps. We supported a little bit of First Infantry Division in our area and 199th Light Infantry Brigade. So anybody called us, they had a booby trap. They came across an enemy bunker complex that was booby trapped. Before they would move in, they would call us. Um, If they found some tunnels and stuff that proved too dangerous, like in one case, uh, this office lieutenant went into a tunnel and there was booby trapped. He was actually blown out of the tunnel, uh, grenade, and uh, wounded in medevac. So after that, nobody would go into the tunnel. So then we went into the tunnel. Um, 
you know, if they find dead ordnance out in the field, like a 500-pound bomb, it didn't go off. They call us, and we'd get rid of it. And, you know, the enemy cache sites, we would dispose of it. Any pro- any problem like that with ordnance, they would give us a call, and we would fly in, normally in two-man teams. Uh, they, they would provide us transportation. We'd go to the helicopter pad, get on the helicopter, go in, link up with the team, sometimes have to walk into the site and do the mission then fly out and go to the next mission. Most missions just were day missions, but uh, some of the missions were as long as a week. That must have been a pretty interesting experience as a young man that, you know, you suddenly have a lot of responsibility put on you and you're working. It sounds like just you and one other guy. Yes, we operated just uh, usually in two-man teams, depending, you know, we might request more EOD, uh, depending on the size of the operation, would ask for help. But normally we would uh, fly in, we would have three days worth of food and water that we would carry. I carry two haversacks, one to two haversacks of explosives, so either 20 to 40 pounds of C4 priming systems and everything and we'd fly in. If we needed anything more than that, the unit that was on the ground would have to supply us with more explosives, bring it in. And after um, after your year in Vietnam, you know, when you returned home, what, could you talk a little bit about coming back home? And I, I take it you wanted to remain in the military. No, I didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> I um, Vietnam War was winding down when I got – I was asked to extend – uh, and uh, I was asked to do some work, classified work in Cambodia where you'd wear civilian clothes. But everything was winding down, so I didn't think the military was for me. So I actually was discharged after ah, Vietnam. okay. Uh, and I was out for two and a half years. Uh, went to Michigan. I worked for its company that uh, b- uh, was a press operator building – stamping out body parts for Ford cars in Michigan. Um, but after two and a half years of doing that and seeing that this job was really a, you know, going nowhere, it's a good paying job, but really I wasn't satisfied. Um, I tried to go back in and this is of course after Vietnam, you know, the army was downsizing at first they said, um, I couldn't go back into the army. They said they weren't taking anybody. But then when I checked later, they said that I could go back in, but it'd have to go back in as EOD. And I said, that's great. <laughs> so I went back in in October of 73, and I was assigned to the 63rd Ordnance Detachment EOD at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Uh, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your friend, um, Ken Foster, who passed away yeah. in what, you know, what today the public <laughs> knows quite well as an IED at that time, I, uh, you know, I imagine it, it wasn't something that was in the public consciousness the way it is today. No, it wasn't. Uh, one of the things you do in EOD is you do uh, Secret Service VIP support. You know, uh, all, today all four services provide support for bomb disposal support for Secret Service. The military does, you know, if they go into any place, uh, a building, that he's got, there's a speaking engagement. It's the military EOD that work with the Secret Service that go in and help clear that area and then stand by in case something's discovered. 
1976, I spent the that year basically on the road doing Secret Service support, the presidential campaign of 1976. It was in Quincy, Illinois in October of 76. Uh, I don't recall the exact date, but we were Senator uh, Bob Dole was speaking in Quincy, Illinois. He was running for Ford as Ford's vice president. So we he was speaking at the high school. And uh, so after his speaking engagement was done uh, that evening, Ken Foster and I, we were working as a two-man team, we went to, out to eat for supper. And while we were eating, we heard explosions going off in town. So they, the county sheriff, the Secret Service, and another two-man EOD team responded to these, the explosion site, one at a bridge. Uh, there was uh, four explosions at this um, – well, it was three explosions at this uh, Coke compressor factory. And um, they just went and responded, you know, just seeing a lot of damage at the bridge and at the factory. But there, at that time, there was no – threat called in. There was just these explosions going off in town. So the next morning, uh, Senator Doe was leaving by charter plane at the airport. We searched all the luggage and stuff that was going on the charter plane. And uh, while we were doing that, a bomb threat came in against Senator Dole at the airport. And so, but we knew we had searched everything. We did a good job. So we said, there's nothing more here to do. So they got on the airplane and took off, and everything was fine. The county sheriff asked us to go out after we got released from Secret Service support to go out and look at the damage and just to give our opinion of what took place th that night. <clears throat> so we went out there, and at the Colt Compressor Factory, the fire they were doing a, continued the search, the fire department was, and then they found another bomb that had not gone off. IED, or back then it was just a homemade bomb. It was several sticks of dynamite, a large uh, alarm clock, a uh, six-volt battery. So they took a Polaroid of it, and where the bomb was actually placed in a trailer of a truck. The whole trailer of this truck was a compressor. That's what they made at the factory. So um, they took a picture. Then they closed the sliding door on the bomb. And then when we got there, we were told that they had found a bomb that had not exploded. And then we saw, look at the Polaroid picture. But you had to walk down between these parked truck trailers, narrow. And uh, so Ken Foster said he'd go down and do a recon. The Illinois arson inspector was there. He'd, he wanted to go down and look at it too. They were just going down for a recon. I was getting the tools ready in case we have to do something. So Ken went down. The arson inspector stayed out a little ways. Ken went down, op opened up the sliding door. And not, we don't know exactly what happened, but we believe when he opened up the sliding door, he looked at the alarm clock. And what they had done is took a screw, put it through the face of the clock, and so it was a when very one simple, of the hands on the clock hits the screw, yeah. it connects the detonator. Yeah. I can't and imagine how scary that must be. Simple just... time delay. Mm -hmm. But what 
but what happens sometimes is uh, these people there's uh, usually paint or varnish on the hands so it doesn't make good electrical contact so we believe the bombs were all went off about the same time wow. this one had time down but failed to go off it wasn't making good electrical contact so I believe Ken thought he needed to do something right then. So normally what you would do is remove the blasting cap, try to remove it out of the dynamite. I think that's what he was trying to do. And that slight movement just moved it enough so it made better electrical contact and it detonated, killing Ken instantly. That has got to be one scary job. Yeah, I mean, you're staring down the barrel of a gun, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but... Once they found that bomb, they stopped searching for any other explosive devices. So before, you know, there was nothing. Ken was killed instantly. He was very close to the explosion site. And um, so we had to continue to make sure the area was safe. Then we got the coroner down there and put Ken in a body bag. So we had, you know, there was four of us on the team. We had drove up from Fort Bragg to Quincy, Illinois, and... Then only three of us, you know, drove back. So that's lonely. Wow. Also, I didn't, after that bomb went off and killed Ken, another bomb threat came in at the high school. So they had to evacuate the high school. So we went to the high school and we contacted, you know, a few of the teachers and, pe and like the janitors and told them to quit, you know, look at, you know, go around the building in high school to see if there's something there that's out of place that's not normally supposed to be there. Because, you know, we go into a high school, you know, we don't know what's supposed to be there and not supposed to be there. So the people that work there know better. So they did a search of the building and uh, found nothing, but had a couple more bomb threats come in. And then we were relieved by another EOD team from Granite City, Illinois. What was the uh, the motivation for the bombing? <clears throat> you know, I don't know that today. It was a two juveniles, teenagers, and a I think he was twenty eight year old uh, that had planted the bombs there. The juveniles were acquitted in trial. Uh, the 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 twenty eight year old. I'm trying to think of what his sentence was. It was a he didn't he didn't get a sentence for murder. It was for a manslaughter charge because he didn't intend to hurt anybody. He was just destroying property. I think his ex -girl, former girlfriend worked there. Um, she's the one that actually tipped off the police and turned her boy ex boyfriend in. And so basically he had a f spent a few years in jail. And uh, just recently, the guy who planted the bombs, his daughter contacted me just, I mean, wow. just maybe a month or two ago. Wow. And uh, she emailed me. And she was 10 years old at the time her dad did that. And um, she had heard stories, but she, nev she never knew she was knew the truth. So she emailed me and wanted to know the truth, what happened, what did her dad do, really do, and all that. So I gave her a copy of my report, and I gave her a copy of the newspaper clippings, scanned copies, and gave it to her. 
that was kind of interesting being hearing from the the guy who built the bomb's daughter mm. yes i mean it's kind of the past coming full circle you know it this, is. this gentleman was killed all those years ago ken foster and you know it continues to haunt the people involved you know yeah her, and and the, his daughter apologized for her dad wow you know, it's just sorry that her dad did all that. And each one of these experiences in Vietnam and then the presidential campaign, I mean, it sounds like it was a learning experience for you as an EOD tech. And, um, and I wanted to ask you next, you know, how did you, you know, it's the 1970s. How did you initially hear or learn that there was some sort of new outfit being stood up, that there was some sort of counterterrorism endeavor? Now, how, how did you come to be involved in all of that? That's a good question. <laughs> I was actually getting bored with stateside EOD going down to the hand grenade range and destroying a hand grenade that somebody throw down range that forgot to pull the pin out or uh, and they would wait till the end of the day to call and say they got a dud grenade down at the end and on the hand grenade range um it, it was just getting boring stateside eod in the 1970s so i decided i wanted to go into special forces i took emt training after ken died um there was nothing I could have done even with the EMT training, but I did went through the EOD pro. I mean, the emergency medical technician program, um, and then I wanted to go to special forces as a medic. I put in a request for 91B medic special forces school, and I, it was approved, and I had a school day. Meanwhile, uh, a sergeant major at our control detachment got wind of uh, a new unit being formed up at Fort Bragg and they were looking for some EOD techs to join the unit. They wanted six EOD techs, preferably NCOs that had Vietnam experience. So the Sergeant Major gave me the phone number. I called up and talked to an admin guy at uh, Fort Bragg at the, at the stockade, the old butlers on Butner Road, the old stockade there on Fort Bragg. And they asked, told him who I was, you know, a little bit about myself. And they said, would you want to come for an interview? And I said, sure, I'd come to. So I came to for an interview. And then two weeks later, I was assigned to this new unit being formed up at Fort Bragg. Uh, Colonel Charlie Beckwith was the commanding officer, and uh, that was the beginning of the first Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. And w at what point did you get wind that, like, actually this was kind of a big deal, this unit that you just uh, volunteered for? I, I, I got – the sergeant major uh, gave me a phone number. I called. And within maybe two or three days, I had TDY orders to go to Fort Bragg for an interview. Um, I went for my interview. Two weeks after the interview, I was assigned. It was uh, to the unit. That was be March of uh, 1978. I was assigned. The units formed up in uh, November of 1977 uh, it's on Smoke Bomb Hill. They had a old World War II um, barracks 
uh, that they started up then. Then they got the stockade. There was about two or three prisoners in the stockade. They put them in the county jail, Cumberland <laughs> County Jail, and uh, we took over the stockade. So it was kind of, and we had to take, you know, go in there with torches, cut out the jail cells, and re, and, and we did all the work ourselves to remodify the stockade to turn it into our uh, headquarters. What was that like those first couple of years that, you know, standing up any unit from scratch, um, you know, as I, I helped stand up, um, you know, my battalion in uh, fifth special forces group. I mean, it's, it's always a, a painful experience. But what was that like for you standing up this new unit and building this new capability that America didn't have at the time? Uh, it was, it was, it was really interesting. It was a, um, we they were getting ready as soon as we got there they were getting ready to uh, start the first operator training course OTC1 so we went through we did the you know we did a 18 mile night road march the five event PT test the swim test the EOD guys that were selected to go through OTC we did not go through the selection and assessment course that the other guys did we just jumped in with them through the operator training course and um, so that was like a five-month program the operator training course and then after we finished the operator training course then the EOD folks that went through had to go through and pass the selection assessment course that fall fall of 78 so we kind of did it backwards I see. we went to we went to OTC then we went to selection and assessment not ever, only two of us made it through selection assessment and OTC1, wow. EOD types. And then we had to go to jump school. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So you did it in reverse order. We did. And uh, what, what, did it, what was OTC like at that point? I remember in, in a previous conversation, you mentioned how um, you know a gentleman from the SAS had come down and helped teach marksmanship. And there's a lot of uh, skill sets that I've come to learn that the Brits were actually a little bit further ahead of us at that point in time. They were. Um, uh, Colonel Beckworth had spent time with the British SAS, so he was, and he modeled us after the British SAS. Uh, the DCO, Bucky Burris, he, uh, he had actually gone through the SAS school, the complete school, and spent time with the SAS. So we were, our selection assessment, our training, everything was modeled on the British SAS. We had instructors come over from the SAS and teach us marksmanship, where we learned how to double tap. The biggest thing that we we would shoot, one of the things that was funny, is that three by five cards, our targets were three by five. I don't, we, we shot up a bunch of three by five cards, but... Uh, that was our main targets to hit, uh, hit that small of an area, did a lot of shooting. Usually all, all the morning was spent in some form of shooting, whether it be out in the rain shooting with 45s or shooting with our M3 grease guns. That's what we had for an assault rifle was the M3 grease gun. And and Beckwith had all of our sights cut off, our grease guns, so we had to instinctively fire. Um, so there was a lot of funny stuff. We played a lot of football f- for PT. 
Beck would be out there with a whistle. You know, he were, he was on the football team when he went to the University of Georgia. So we were out there. We would play football, throw the ball. Um, we did a lot of brick PT. And brick PT is that we had these red bricks, and we would have to hold them straight out and do different exercises, arm strengthening exercises with these red bricks. Uh, it was uh, it was quite interesting. Could you talk a little bit about your teammates in the unit, that first generation of guys? I mean, who were these men? What were they like? Well, most a lot of them were special forces and rangers, um, and came in. A lot of them we we had a few of them that were on the Sante raid. Um, uh, Jack Joplin was on the Sante raid. Dick Meadows was on the Sante raid. Um, so we had a lot of guys that spent, uh, in fifth group in Vietnam, um, and we had Rangers. And so, but Beckwith, his vision for a counter-terrorist unit was that he did not want to be locked in with certain MOSs. He wanted to recruit army wide because in a seat, in a, in a, going, say undercover, low, low visibility, you might have to pose as a cook, uh, as a, a heavy equipment driver, uh, different skill sets for counterterrorism. And so he, so he wasn't locked in from recruiting just the Rangers and Special Forces. Uh, but he wanted to have um, at least six EOD folks incorporated, you know, going through the operator training course, being operators first, and having the skill EOD skill set in case there was booby traps, uh, hostages with body bombs that would have to be removed, or you know that kind of stuff. So it was a very close knit, and we still are very close knit. Those first group of guys that went through, I still email and talk to them regularly. At that time, what was uh, what was the threat? What was what was the perception of what your unit was going to have to deal with downrange when something popped off? Well, you know, our un- we had an unclassified mission. Our un- and our unclassified mission was POW rescue. You know, there was still the thought that there might be some POWs being held in Southeast Asia. Uh, hostage taking was the big game in town. Terrorists taking over aircraft with hostages um, and trains and like in the, in, the, in the Holland with the Moluccans, they took yeah. over a train. Uh so it was mainly counterterrorism and hostage rescue, you know, doing a lot of room clearing, uh, close quarter uh, battle firing. Um, that's what we were mainly concentrating in. And then as, you know, as Delta got established, do you want to talk about the first mission that came down uh, that the unit was assigned <laughs> Yeah, we were just we just became validated as a unit, uh, and um, well, we uh, I was in B Squadron. We were actually out in Breckenridge, Colorado, skiing, doing winter training, and um, when on November fourth, the for the second time, 
the Iranians took over the American embassies. Uh, that would have been November 4th, 1979. And they, it was supposed to be, they, I guess initially it was just a short takeover, but it became a siege. And so they had collected a bunch of hostages, American hostages at the embassy. Uh, some of them were later released. Uh, the, everybody, uh, the African Americans, all except for one, was released. Uh, so the, in the end, they had 53 hostages, 50 being held at the American embassy, and three was were held at the defense minister's building. The uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Ministry yeah. of Foreign Affairs. The three had gone over there for a meeting. Uh, the the charge d'affaires, however you say that. He was there, Langley, Langley. And uh, so uh, we had two different locations and 53 hostages. So immediately we were called back from, we didn't know what was going on. They just told us to go back to Fort Bragg immediately. So we flew back to Fort Bragg, landed at Camp McCall. And they took us into isolation, and we started uh, being briefed of what happened, hostage taking, and we started immediately doing the planning. We had a 3D model made up of the embassy compound, the buildings. You had models of the buildings that you could take apart and look at the different rooms. It was a huge, like a 10-foot by 10-foot mock-up of the whole compound. Um, and then we started uh, practicing. There was a lot of different options of how we would go in and do it. One was to do, you know, go in and do a static line jump, uh, and then the helic. Then also uh, they drop uh, bladders in of fuel at uh, the Desert One site, and. Uh, Helicopters would come in. We refill them up and go in. That was determined that we might have too many casualties if we do a static line jump. So then we were came in and we went in by MC 130s into Desert One. What we eventually did. Could you uh, talk a little bit about you know what uh, you know the the role the job that you were assigned on the mission because I remember you had told me a little bit about doing all the mission rehearsals over and over and over and over again. We did. Uh, we we had a wall built, a facsimile wall built at the stockade, and every day we'd have to load up our with all of our gear and practice going over this wall. We had ladders that we would place up against the wall, and then we had a knotted rope that we would be that we'd throw over the wall tied to the ladder and we'd have to go over the wall as quietly as possible and to go hand over hand down this knotted rope. Uh, we did that every day. We would lay out um, engineer tape on the ground uh, to uh, f- to the right size of all these, uh, the, the compound. And um, then we would have to, after we got done training, we would have to remove the engineer tape um, they were worried about Russian satellites seeing us lay out these engineer tapes. Um, so we start, you know, we every day. Um, my team that I was assigned to, um, our mission was the to, the second floor of the ambassador residence. 
Once we'd go over to the wall, we would move to a side door that entered the kitchen of the ambassador's residence, and we would go up a stair in the kitchen to the second floor. And then our mission was to secure the second floor, the team I was on. And uh, once the second floor was secure and we had all the hostages, if there were any on the second floor, which we believe there were, uh, then two of us would go to the roof of the building and then I had a rope and I'd throw the rope down over the, from the roof down to the ground. Bucky Burris, he, some, some of the guys were carrying laws, M60, uh, 66 millimeter M72 laws. They would drop them off there at where Bucky Burris was. He would tie the laws to the rope. We would haul them up to the roof and then we would overwatch the main entrance gate with these laws. Wow. So as you were going through this, you know, these, uh, these rehearsals again and again, I, what, was, what was your thoughts about uh, this operation? I mean, were guys pretty nervous about this? Were they in high spirits? Uh, what, what was the thoughts about how this was going to actually play out? I would say we were all motivated in high spirits. I mean, we did this every day, this training. I would even at night in my sleep dream about exactly <laughs> the going through the whole deal uh, in my sleep. Uh, so we, we, we were really, you know, pumped up to do this mission to rescue the hostages. Um, in our training, though, we had the biggest problem was the helicopters, and we had these RH-53D helicopters. They were the only helicopters in inventory that could do the distance and do the lift that we needed for them to do. The RH-53D helicopters were Navy helicopters, and they were used in countermining. They would... Their normal mission, they would go out in a body of water and they would do a grid pattern carrying these um, sensors that would uh, detect mines. And uh, so they would tow those behind Dragon in the water. So they would just do grid patterns in the daytime. So we had these Navy crew. Now they were expected to fly, you know, do desert training, flying at night with night vision goggles. And they had no experience at all doing desert flying with night vision goggles. And well, so that first group of Navy pilots were relieved. And then we got in Marine pilots and Marine crew. Uh, we had one, one guy was an air force. One pilot was air force, but otherwise they were mostly Marines. And, uh, so they, they too had to, a learning curve to fly in the desert and stuff. They would get lost. They uh, sometimes they wouldn't land where we wanted them to land. They would, you know, the desert would. They'd come in with these RH-53s. They kick up the dust. They'd get vertigo and couldn't see. Then they would lift off, and we had they would break down. You know, we never had it. Never had anything that really. When we worked with the helicopters, it never worked right. And that was probably our weakest link. And it turned to be that was our weakest link in the whole operation was the helicopters. Uh. The, the crews, you know, they tried their best. But, they, you know, we had been training for two years to, to do this kind of mission. And they've only had weeks 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think one of the big lessons learned from uh, Eagle Claw was that we can have the greatest operators in the world. We can have the Charlie Beckwiths, the Bucky Burrises, and these great men. But if we can't get the operators to their target, I mean, then, then of course, none of it matters. But, you know, that was our, you know, some people tried to compare this to Entebbe, but this was a lot bigger operation than the Israeli Entebbe operation. We had a lot of more distance to go. We had sophisticated, uh, the Iranians had sophisticated radar. Uh, it, this was a very complicated mission. And you had the Soviets looking over your shoulder, too. We did. They they were they were monitoring the fleet, you know, the carrier fleet that was out there. The U.S. Nimitz was the one that, uh, you know, Kitty Hawk was on station, and Kitty Hawk was relieved by the Nimitz. So our eight helicopters were on board the USS Nimitz, and they were being monitored. It's we have a, a few different um, accounts written, you know, including from Colonel uh, Colonel Beckwith's book about how things went down at Desert One, but it's not so often that you get the chance to talk to somebody who was actually there because there aren't that many of you. You know, it was a small operation, relatively small. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us about what happened at Desert One that night when you guys got to, and for the listeners who don't know, Desert One was the staging area in the desert of Iran before the operators would be transported to the embassy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, one comment about his book. It was interesting to read his book because my perspective of what some of the events that he wrote in the book was different than his perspective. And it's interesting to see as a commander looking down what he thought took place right. and then being somebody at the bottom. Uh, that was really interesting reading his book. It's what took place is that I was on the first MC-130 that landed in Desert One. John Carney, the CCT guy who had mm -hmm. set up the lights, went in earlier and set up the lights, was on that plane. Uh, we had the Ranger roadblock team on that plane. So uh, as we were coming into Desert One, uh, there was traffic down below. There was a road that we were going to be landing next to. It's supposed to be no, but there's no traffic on this road. It's been watched and watched and no traffic. Now there's headlights on this road. So we did a couple of passes, uh, and then we went down to land. As soon as we land and they open up the ramp and we're coming off the ramp, next thing you know, you see headlights coming down the road again. So it was a, it was a bus, and, uh, and Beckwith hollered, you know, stop that bus. So somebody shot a 40 millimeter round in front of the bus and the bus stopped, you know, missed the bus, but went out in the desert and detonated. Um, and the bus stopped, we boarded on the bus. Uh, and um, we took, then we had 44 hostages, civilian hostages of our own off the bus. So we took them off the bus, we searched them. Uh, um, and we put them in a ditch, handcuffed some of the people with flex ties, the males, uh, and started guarding them. Meanwhile, the roadblock teams went down, and here comes some another vehicles up the road. There's a, a fuel truck with a pickup drop behind it. So one of the rangers fires their law at the fuel truck. It actually hits underneath the fuel truck and detonates. Um, and causes the, f the fuel truck starting to burn. The people in the fuel truck jump out, hop into the pickup, and then they took off. 
and they got out of the, out of there. So we got a fuel truck now that's sitting there burning. Um, but, but and then we have no helicopters. Uh, we're waiting and waiting and waiting for the helicopters. And uh, finally, the fuel truck det- detonates. It's like a huge explosion, fireball going up into the sky. Um, you know, so much for secrecy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then the helicopters saw our fireball. They came in and they had, you know, when we, we had a dust storm go on while we were flying into uh, the desert one site in Iran Uh, and the fixed wings, the three MC one thirties and the three EC one thirties bladder birds, the EC one thirties, we flew above the dust storm. One of the things dust storms do is they mask radar. So you can fly above the, you know, and still be undetected. So in a sense, that was good. Helicopters, the helicopter crews flew through the dust storm. Instead of getting on top of the dust storm, they were told that they had to stay low for the radars. Uh, they never were t- briefed about weather conditions such as, you know, the haboos, the dust storms that could occur. So they just charged on. And we couldn't talk to the helicopters secure. Back then with satellite uh, radio, what the helicopters would have had to have done is to sit down in the desert, set up a SATCOM radio, and 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 then talk to somebody about what was going on. So they... So they just kept plowing through one dust storm. They got out of that, and then they plowed through another dust storm. When the helicopter crews finally landed, and there was only six helicopters, there weren't eight, you could look at the faces of the, the crew. They were at the point of exhaustion. They, they had been through the ringer. And um, so we had to re- – they renumbered the helicopters, Um and um, so we were getting into, I think, helicopter number five. Well, th- helicopter number five developed a hydraulic problem, and it wasn't going to be flyable. So now we're down to five helicopters. Five helicopters is was the bare minimum to do the mission, to get all of the, the rescue force out and all of the hostages out. We needed no less than five helicopters. And we had actually planned on losing another helicopter at our hide site, because we, from that night, we would move to a hide site out of Tehran by, aware, by these buildings where our trucks were being stored, um, and we would spend the, the daytime there. And then uh, we, we figured that one of those helicopters wouldn't start up. There would be a problem. Uh, we'd lose another helicopter. And and because the helicopters would, after we secured the host, you know, all the hostages at the American embassy, we went across Roosevelt Road to the, there's a soccer stadium. And the soccer stadium was where we were going to set up for the helicopters to come in and evacuate everybody. So it was determined with five helicopters that was not we couldn't do the mission uh, yeah so at that point the mission was scrubbed right then the accident happened when the helicopter crashed into the uh, c-130 
or yeah. MC-130? Yeah, B Squadron, we were all loaded into this EC-130 to fly back. The mission was canceled. Uh, we were actually, the plan was to fly the 44 hostages out with us, Iranian hostages out with us later, you know, you know, sent, you know, being able to repatriate them back. Um, and um, so we we're going to abort the mission. So we, B Squadron, we loaded up into this EC-130, this bladder bird that still had, you know, it had initially 5,000 gallons of uh, aviation fuel to hit, fill up the helicopter. So it was like a giant waterbed. And so we got in there and it, we buttoned up and, um, the props were going. The next thing you expected, everything was dark inside. Next thing you expected was the brakes to be released and you'll start taxiing. Well, what happened was that behind us was the two helicopters that were refilled from this airplane. The CCT, uh, they were getting dust from our props. So the CCT wanted to move the helicopters, just reposition them. We were going to leave first. The helicopters would leave after us. So they were just repositioning the helicopters. Well, the one helicopter behind us, when it landed, it landed hard and it had flat tires. It flattened its wheels. So in order, to, it couldn't taxi away. It had to physically lift up off the ground to move away. When it lifted up, they got vertigo. They came in and crashed into our right, our left right side by by the where the cockpit was. Next thing we know, we're inside the helic inside the aircraft. The props are cutting through the top of the fuselage. Where there's an explosion, we're rocked, and then the left front cockpit door actually blows in on the C-130, and nothing but a ball of flame comes into that cockpit area, and uh, and only one of the Air Force crew that was up in the cockpit was able to escape out of the emergency cockpit hatch up in the front. Uh, so, you know, that five, so the, the five Air Force crew that were up in the cockpit were trapped and, and they, you know, were, were killed. But this, so here comes all this fire and flame in through our C-130. And so we don't know what, what is the cause of all this. We don't know that this helicopter just crashed into the side of us. We, all we know is that we are now on fire. So they tried to lift the left, you know, the left rear cockpit, I mean, the parachute door, tried to open that. Well, that was the side the helicopter had oh crashed God, into, yeah. and there was nothing but flames. So as soon as they cracked it, they put it back down because there was nothing but flames. And the, the helicopter had an internal fuel tank, and that had ruptured, and that had blew up. And the three Marines that were in the crewmen that were in the back of the helicopter, they perished. But we initially disappeared in that fire, initial fireball for observers that were watching what was taking place outside. Um, they thought the whole, we were all gone. Uh, so they opened up the right rear paratrooper door and there was, even though our props were still going and there was fire whipping through, we were able to jump out of the right rear paratrooper door. 
And uh, Dave Cheney, this was all B Squadron that was on there. Dave Cheney's, you know, hollered, uh, don't panic. And so we were just lining up going out that, that door. And um, I was up near the front, and I really did not think it was possible for me to, where I was, to make that door. I thought I was going to perish that night in that, you know, I thought that this is how my life is going to end in the back of that thing. The fire was starting to get pretty intense. Small arms was cooking off. And finally, I was able to reach that door, and I jumped out and just dove out, rolled, got to my feet, and out. I could hear hand grenades detonating that we had uh, on board. Uh, we had six red-eye missiles on that aircraft, and they started uh, catching on fire, and you could see the missiles just shooting out into the desert. Um, so... Then when we got out, you know, all the other aircraft were moving away from us because it was just intense, the explosions and... All that uh, fuel cooked, going on fire. Yeah. So finally I got to a, um, you know, the first aircraft I tried to get on, they waved us away. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. But they were just trying to reposition to get away from the fire. And uh, so when I got on the back end of this other air fixed wing. It was another EC-130 bladder bird, and I said, oh boy, it was on one bladder bird, now I'm getting on another one. Um, then I, the pilot was on the ramp. So, uh, one of, one of the, the, I guess the CCT guys carried the pilot. The pilot and co-pilot of the helicopter actually got out of the helicopter, and they, they were there, so on the, on, I, on the flight back, I did medical aid for the pilot for the whole flight back. Um, that must have been a long flight home. Yeah, it was. Yeah, once we had not a head count, there was no head count. We didn't know who was in those aircraft and who we had left behind. There was no, you know, that fire was so intense. You, once you left that area, there was no going back to see you know, to recover any bodies that night, uh, that was impossible. Uh, so when we took off, uh, our aircraft, we actually hit that dirt berm on the road and, and it just, we ran into that dirt bird, that dirt berm. And, um, then we finally got airborne and then, uh, so I provided, uh, kept the, the talk to the, we had uh, some morphine that we gave the people that were burnt, um, and, but no, no medical, really anything, no IVs, no, no medical kits. All they had, a, had on the aircraft was those little kits that they have on the, you know, in the. Right, the little first the, aid kits. Yeah, we didn't have a medical package. In hindsight, there should have been a medical package on each aircraft with all the stuff that we needed, but we didn't have any of that. Um, they, they told us that came on the speaker and said that our landing gear may have been damaged, that we may not have any landing gear when we get back to Masseria in Oman where we were landing. And uh, then they then they came over and said we may not have enough fuel to make it back because we were stayed on the ground. We may have to ditch at sea. This was a long and night. <laughs> it was. And finally, we landed back in Oman. 
And then that's when we took headcount. I didn't, you know, on the aircraft, I only knew you know, Chris Abel. Um, I didn't see my other two teammates, Bill Zuma, Eric Haney. I, they weren't on that aircraft. So we didn't know who until we got back to Oman and they took a head count who was where and who were left at, behind. At that point, you probably weren't even sure who survived, right? Right. Beckwith's book, he says we had accountability. That was not true. And before we left. Well, I, you know, when I interviewed, I was doing that article about uh, Detachment A, which had a, a small role in the in the mission. One of the guys, one of the dead A guys said he jumped in front of a C-130 that was taking off empty. Yeah. There's no one on it. And he jumped in front of it with his submachine gun and was like, stop, stop, stop. You know, and uh, it was, I mean, that's horrifying to think. I mean, guys would have at that point being left behind. Mm-hmm. It is very possible we, I, that somebody could have been left behind that night. Luckily, nobody was left behind. In, uh, in Jerry Boykin's book, he also talks about running at full speed to catch up with an airplane as it was leaving and like jumps on at the last moment. Right. Yeah, they were they were moving out, you know, like the first plane I tried to get on, they waved us away. And the ramp was open, there's people on the back and they just waved us away, but you know, they were just trying to get away from all the fire and explosion. What what was the um the the impact that that Desert 1 had on on the unit and, you know, what what did you guys come home and um I know you began planning for um what was it Operation Snowbird? Uh, which yeah, honey badger. <laughs> honey badger. Yeah, we called it honey badger. That would have been the second one. Uh, we never. They took people, scattered them, through, and put them in prisons throughout Iran. We never had a fix on locations, and honey badger, you know, never really happened. And um, uh, the morale, you know, we were disappointed. We were we. We knew if we could have gotten to the embassy, that was the big if. If we could have got to the embassy, we were very confident that with our training and everything that we would have been able to rescue the hostages. Our belief was that we would have gotten to the embassy. Everything would have been fine. We'd make it. We were really more concerned about after we got the hostages would those helicopters show up at that stadium mm-hmm. and pick us pick us up? That was one of our big concerns. We practice our E and E plan. Um, we you know we were carrying five thousand dollars U S money, five thousand dollars uranium money. We had maps and sewed in, into our field jackets that we were wearing. You know, we had so we we were taught how to hot wire cars, which cars to steal, um, and so we all had an E and E plan, and how we would try to get out and work our way, say, to Turkey, uh, if we had to escape and evade. And uh, well, I, there's a so many questions and so many different things we could get into, but um, you know, I know we only take up so much of your day. I, I did want to ask you. A few years later, um, you were involved in another conflict, which unfortunately is nearly forgotten today. Probably most Americans uh, don't have much memory of this. But in 1983, the United States launched an invasion of the island of Grenada. Yeah, uh, and I, I was wondering if you could um, talk to us a little sure. bit about your experiences. Sure. 
Well, you know, after the Iran hostage, there was the Holloway Commission, and yes. they did the investigation, and Joint Special Operations Command was formed up to solve these inner service problems that we had during the Iran rush rescue. So the next mission that came along, night, October of 1983, was the uh, Grenada. And again, we were out west training, got the word that we had to go back to Fort Bragg. And when we got to Fort Bragg, we found out that we were going to invade the island of Grenada. A lot of guys didn't even know there was an, you know anything about Grenada. <laughs> that, and that we were to... One of the big concerns was the medical students that were uh, on the island. It's a it's a big area for Americans to go to get their medical degrees, and so there was a lot. So Reagan and you know they had a coup and they had they overthrew the government and they had a Marxist government now in there with ties to Cuba. Cuba you know, Cuban engineers were there rebuilt and making meg hangers and making that a, a forward base for, for say, Meg, Hel uh, Meg Jets. So we were told in a matter of a few days, we had to plan the the, uh, the invasion of Grenada. So, uh, so we did that, and uh, I was with B Squadron. And uh, our mission was the... Um, the uh, Richmond Hill prison. A prison is um, a pretty hard target, difficult target to take down. Yeah. The, the reason we were, our mission was the Richmond Hill prison. That's where the political prisoners were being held. And we were to go there and secure them. The Rangers were to rescue the, you know, to round up the medical students, but we were to get the political prisoners. So we flew in. We had eight helicopters. B Squadron was on the first uh, six helicopters. The last two helicopters carried the SEAL team. Their mission was the governor general's residence. He was also being held uh, on home arrest in, in his residence. So the SEALs would break off and they would go to the governor general's residence to rescue him. And then they broke off, and we went into Richmond Hill Prison. Um, we were supposed to go in there at first light. There were a lot of delays for whatever reason. It was broad daylight when we went into uh, when it flew in. Uh, we heard on Radio Grenada that the American invasion has begun. Go to the grab your rifles. Go to the beaches and meet the Americans. Uh, we, as we flew over the, the coast, the beach, with our helicopters, we saw a bunch of people down below waving at us. Uh, there was, you, you could hear somebody, you know, a, a rifle shooting here and here and there. When we got to the prison, as we flew over the prison, uh, we're going to do fast ropes. This would be the first helicopter assault using fast ropes. And this is the first time use of the Blackhawk helicopters. So we came in, and but there's this other fort, Fort Frederick, right next to us that's on a higher ground overlooking the prison. Well, they had the Zeus 23s, 50, you know, 12.7 millimeter, and with their, you know, 7.62, they they opened up with everything. 
thing that they had on our six helicopters. And we were getting hit right and left. Immediately, uh, our door gunner on the left side was shot. Um, and, uh, you know, Jerry Boykin took actually a 23 millimeter round in his, he had a SATCOM radio on his back. The round hit his SATCOM radio and detonated. Uh, he lost a part of his shoulder muscle area uh, when that took place. Um, so we were getting guys getting, we were just taking heavy fire. And they were coming out of the prison from down below us, shooting up, and bullets were going through the floors of the helicopters. So we pulled away. We, you know, we hovered. We were just wanting to get down, the fast ropes down, get onto the ground and fight. Uh, our helicopter was supposed to land outside the prison. There was a guardhouse, and we were to take the guardhouse. But uh, we pulled off. The firing was too tense, so they pulled off. And uh, helicopter four in front of us, the, uh, the pilot was mortally shot, and that helicopter four went down. And then we circled around. And we came back around, and we went through it a second time. Oh, my God. Uh, very intense, you know, firing. Uh, we, there was, I don't know why we didn't have jets we could, or AC-130 support to suppress the fire, why, why that wasn't part of our plan. Uh, but they were totally ready for us. So we hovered around. Again, we couldn't get we couldn't get the low enough for us to put the fast ropes down. Then we pulled off and landed out there by the airfield, Salinas Airfield. We only had one helicopter that was flyable, so we loaded put two teams in that helicopter. Our, the team I was on, and another team, and we flew back to where helicopter four had crashed, and we secured that site till we got a medevac helicopter in there to get those guys out of that there. And then after we had pulled off the, the site, they opened up the jail and released all the political prisoners. And that was it. Our mission was done. We had of our, I think we had 17 wounded guys from Delta on that mission. It's incredible. Yeah, and because of that mission, they looked at what went wrong with, you know, the interface with the Marines doing the Marines doing the amphibious landings and all the coordination problems. There was a lot of uh, friendly fire deaths, more than tolerable. And um, so after reviewing what went wrong in Operation Urgent Fury, um, that's when USOCOM was formed up to correct those problems. Right, right. That was the um, Goldwater Nichols Act. Right. Um, yeah, the, it's. I guess it's important to remember for you know some of the people who are listening that you know one of the things that the United States military does better than anyone else is joint operations. But it wasn't always like that. You know, there are some really hard lessons learned, uh, you know, that Sergeant Major Vining's talking about, you know, SOCOM and JSOC and all these great things um, or other just general, you know, interoperability between the four services. You know, there's a long time for that to come around and get to where it is today. 
It is. It was a lot of growing pains, costly growing pains. Um, but uh, I'm proud of uh, the special operation capability that we have today and all the special operators that we have today. Well, you know, I, I came into the Army in 2002, so I, I feel like I really inherited you know, something that you had created, you and your peers had created for, you know, my generation. And when we got there, we really stood on your shoulders. Uh, when we went into Iraq, uh, when we went into Afghanistan, we didn't have to repeat all those same mistakes because of what you guys had built. And, you know, I really appreciate that. And that's why I love having people like you on this podcast. Yeah. You know, you know, being it to communicate, uh, using satellite communication. That was in the infancy, satellite communication secure was, and all that stuff was developed and all the different equipment was developed from all those early missions. Well, I know we're, we're like plowing through things so quickly and, um, you know, your career is so extensive and there's no way we'll, we'll be do able a part to get two to at it some all. point. Yeah, sure. we could do a part two if, if, if uh, Sergeant Major Vining is willing, because like I, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, sure. I'd be willing. Um, yeah, you, you want to do that? But, um, and we can talk because uh, there's also Desert Storm in Haiti, and maybe we can talk about that next time. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton to get to. I, I agree. I, I think that this is... You know, we've spoken with you for well over an hour right now, and yes, there's a ton more. Okay, to talk yeah, about, yeah. So maybe yeah. we'll not, uh, you know, give uh, give Sergeant Major Vining a break. <laughs> if I could throw in one question that uh, that yeah. you know, just from all these fascinating stories that you've told, Sergeant Major Vining, um, mm-hmm. I, I have to ask, like, do you feel lucky to be alive? I mean, not only alive. I'm looking at you right now. You're not only in one piece. You look to be in in great health, and you've probably had more brushes with death than just about anybody with all these stories that you've told. I I have. I was uh, actually one time in Vietnam. I had a rocket blow up, an XM-74 liquid incendiary rocket right in front of me. Um, blow up in a pile of ammunition. We were doing an ammo dump. I blew up, and we were doing cleanup on that, and that rocket detonated. And um, I thought I was dead. Everything was orange. Everything was hot. I thought that whole pile of ammunition had just detonated, and I was dead until I felt pain. And I grabbed my arm, and I ran. And um, then I looked down and to see if I even had legs, uh, that I was even running. And I did. I, I had my uh, jungle fatigues on, my bush hat on. And, but I looked like that Wiley Coyote who had just uh, went into the dynamite locker and lit a <laughs> match to see where he was. Wow. Uh, my, had holes in my uniform. I was smoking. And then we, the four guys that were helping us, um, they, they were burnt really bad. And so we had to get them out and medevaced. And, but I thought I was actually dead. I didn't think I'd survive uh, in that C-130 and on Desert One, I thought that uh, there was an impossible to to exit that aircraft. Um, so That's yeah, there was, there's been many times. Um, there's also, you know, when we have, uh, when we do part two also, I, I want to ask, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about your retirement because a whole life after service. Uh, is something important also. And I get the sense that you and your wife have a tremendous amount of fun traveling around the country. <laughs> we do. We travel 
like last year, we were gone. We were more than we were at home traveling. <laughs> we'll have to talk about yeah. all that. I think it's great. Yeah, and, and I mentioned it earlier for those wondering what uh, Major Vining, Sergeant Major Vining, is up to now. Um, he's currently working at the National EOD Association and the EOD Warrior Foundation, um, the first of which you can visit online at nateoda.com, nateoda.com, and then eodwarriorfoundation.org. Is there anything else that you, that you want to get out there? No. Uh, just my recent work is help, doing research from the past, from World War II to Korea, and looking for uh, names that were lost to history that should be on the EOD Memorial that's located uh, in Eglin Air Force Base. So like this year, right now, in May, first Saturday in May is National EOD Day. So far this year, we're going to add six Army names from the past and three Navy names from the past to the EOD Memorial. And I have a team that helps me, and we research going through old documents and the Internet, trying to find names uh, that we have missed on our EOD Memorial, which was first established in 1970. So we've you know, we wow. didn't have a good handle on those early deaths from World War II and Korea. Well, thanks for all of the work you've done and continue to do. Well, you know, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that we could have you on today. Well, thanks, Ian and Jack. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to give you a call and we'll, we'll schedule to have you on another time when, you know, that works for you. Okay. But this has been Thank super you. cool been a pleasure Appreciate all right it. we'll talk again soon thank you so i guess before we head out of here the only other thing i wanted to mention um if you you know i was going to play the audio i don't know if you want to save it for maybe next show uh since we've gone pretty long here i'm, I'm down to keep going but we have uh, throw a punch of the week which i think rightfully goes to this california history and social studies teacher gregory uh salcedo of oh, yeah, el rancho yeah. High school. It's up to you. Do you think we should play the audio now? I don't want to. I don't want to play the audio. Yeah, yeah. This can, is too awesome of a show to to damper it with that. People, so people can go and uh, I think uh, Alex wrote an article about it on Soft Rep, and they can go and, and listen to it if they want. Yeah, we could maybe even play it. Next but yeah, the, the, the public school teacher, and he went on like a huge rant, like anti-military rant. It's six like, minutes long, so it's not like he could say, "Oh, I misspoke," and it was. You know, he compared uh, military recruiters on campus to having like pimps on campus uh, recruiting prostitutes. Yeah, it, it was really it was bad. it was super unprofessional, and you know, it goes beyond. You know, I as a teacher, a public school teacher, I mean, uh, it's always hard to be you know give a totally unbiased view. You know, those things are going to seep in. Like if I were to teach a class, you know, it'd probably be more pro-military, you know, and people go, oh, well, you're biased. Well, yeah. You say I'm, that I'm, Army Rangers are cooler than Navy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, some, some, <laughs> of that, some of that stuff will come through a little bit, and we, I think we can understand that. But this guy was just, like, going off on a tangent and to the point that it's like it's not even expressing an opinion. Like, yeah. hey, the military is bad because of this and that. It's just, and he I, said they're all idiots. Yeah, yeah. It's just really childish stuff. Uh, so I don't know why the guy felt the need to do that especially in front of you know a bunch of kids yeah and this is the third time he's been put on administrative leave so this guy has a history he's also a politician um like local politician 2010 threatened to kill a 16 year old girl in the class or at least said i'm gonna kill you uh 2012 he bullied some kid and called him chaz bonus we'll leave it at that throw a punch of the week gregory salcedo 
Um, after hearing Mike Vining, I feel like he'd be a great guy to do some guest pieces for Soft Rep. I mean, he's definitely a really smart, well-spoken guy, and I, I bet he could write some really interesting stuff. He has written some stuff. I don't know if he would be interested in having it published or not. If he is, I'd be absolutely thrilled to host that. Um, I mean, the amount of stories this guy has. He, he's been there. Been there, done that. Um, you know, he really was on the ground floor for, you know, American counterterrorism, you know, all through the 70s, 80s, into the 90s. I mean, he was there. Um, he's definitely got some stories. Yeah. No, I loved hearing from him. Um, and also just the, the jobs that he did must have been terrifying, you know, and, and we always talk about how guys in the military, guys in special ops, it's not that they don't have fear. They just have to put that fear aside and do the job. And to hear about that Bob Dole bomb scare, which turned into, you know, an actual bombing. Good friend of his getting killed. Yeah, I couldn't imagine having to to do that line of work. It's, yeah, it's wild. You know, being on, on trapped on an aircraft that's on fire and there's just a fireball coming down behind you through the fuselage, like, I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And and the crazy thing is, like, this is a name that n- overall not a lot of people know and probably should know. I, I, I have my opinions, of course, you know, I, and I, I don't I try not to go off on, a, you know, like hero worship or anything like that, because I'd really embarrass uh, some of these guys. Um, you know, I actually I called a, uh, a retired squadron commander one time, <laughs> talked to him and he's like, Murphy, do not get into like calling me a hero or any of that kind of business. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not. Adult, uh, I, I just want to talk about, you know, what happened, what didn't happen. Um, this was actually when I was writing that blue light article. Um, but, you know, these, these guys are, you know, they're our predecessors, you know, and, and I wasn't kidding what I what I said to uh, Mike Vining was they built something that when 9-11 happened, America wasn't completely fat, flat-footed. We had the organizational structures. We had SOCOM. We had JSOC. We had these elements that could respond. Yeah. If Mike Vining and his peer group had not created those things and built those capabilities up, imagine if 9-11 happened and we're starting from scratch. Yeah. We wouldn't have been able to do anything. And he truly is an originator because when you see that he was in the first OTC class, OTC like, class one, amazing, yeah. So great having Mike on. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, it's awesome that we have you. And he's a su- he's a super nice guy too. Yeah, he really was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so last thing before we get out of here, and of course, it's always important to talk about as a reminder for all of those who are listening. For a limited time, you could receive a fifty percent discounted membership to SoftRep TV, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. Uh, Drew Wallace was at our team room party, and I know the guys are hard at work on some new programming that you guys are going to love. SoftRep TV's premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV at softreptv.us and take advantage of a limited time offer that's 50% off your membership for only $4.99 a month. And then also, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you are definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical 
and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All of the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've sent in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. And now with these podcasts, multiple podcasts a week um, to no fee and, you know, taking down the paywall, all that we ask, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. It helps get our visibility up. Um, and that's that's it on my end, man. Great show. Yeah, it was awesome. Absolutely. All right, so we'll see you next show with uh, Buck Sexton, and we're at. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.